The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, we're glad that you're here because uh, we believe that uh, one of the most important things that we can do with our time, with our energy, with our minds, is to uh, consider what we encounter in God's Word. That this is the word that God has given to us, and we believe that this is the most important word that we can hear. And so, so it's right for us to take time and to, to spend our energies pouring over God's word and learning from it and hearing from it what he tells us about himself and about the world and about us. And how we are to live in the midst of this world. And, and so each and every week we come to God's word because we believe it is the very source of life. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 9. That's the portion of his word we're in this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Joshua 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We project the passage on the screens. You can follow along there. And if you came here this morning and you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one at home, um, we would love for you to take that one that, that's in the chair in front of you. Just take it with you. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. But we're in Joshua 9, and if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in the portion of Joshua that is focusing its attention on the conquest, right? God's people is, are taking the land that is before them. They're taking this land, and, and in last week's passage, Joshua and Israel, they took the city of Ai. And then after taking the city of Ai, they renewed their covenant with God. Well, now they're moving further into the land. And now Israel, the people of God, they're going to interact with the people of the land again. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're going to interact with the people of the land again, but this time it's going to be in a different way because this time it's not going to be through battle. It's not going to be through war. Instead, what's going to come is peace, but peace in a very unexpected way. So let's go ahead and read Joshua 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took out worn out sacks took out worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But when the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. 
For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord, your God, had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us, do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the land of the people of Israel, out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to it now, and we ask that you would help us. Lead us in the way that we are to go and show us your truth. Help us to walk with you and to know you so that you would be given great glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a number of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine. This man's name is Kevin. Kevin has never stepped foot in this building. He's never been to Roanoke. Uh, Kevin is is a guy I know from Canada. So y'all don't know Kevin. But Kevin uh, is this uh, man that I was talking to. He, he's not a Christian. He doesn't go to church. He never grew up going to church. And in our conversation, I was sharing with him the gospel. I was telling him about Jesus and how through the death and life, the life and death and resurrection of Christ, there's new life that comes. 
that all of our sins are forgiven and how this new found faith of mine I wanted Kevin to know about. And so I shared with him about God's grace, his mercy, his kindness. And it was great. We're having this conversation. And, and as he heard of God's grace, as he heard of God's mercy, I could see that, that he was liking what he was hearing because after all, who, who doesn't like that, right? Grace, love, kindness, and mercy. When we think about our lives, I mean, who wouldn't want to hear about those sorts of things? And so, so in our conversation, I can tell that he's, he's tracking with me, he's understanding it. But it, it caused him to ask some questions. He said, so Penny, what you're telling me is that, that anyone can be saved. Anyone can have God's grace. Anyone can have God's mercy from, from the littlest ones who can barely speak to, to those with their dying breath, with their last breath. Any of those can be saved and everywhere in between, right? And I said, yes, isn't that amazing? You know, I'm thinking, this is awesome. He's coming along. You know, this is going to be so great. And, and then he goes, but doesn't that make you mad? Doesn't that make you angry? And I didn't track with him. I couldn't understand. So he went on and he said, well, well you've been a Christian for a little bit now. And, and, you know, if you lead a normal life, a normal length life, you're going to be a Christian for 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years before you die. Not, not me, 80. I, I came to faith later in life. But regardless, um, you know, you could have a long life of following after Jesus, of denying yourself, of turning away from th the things of this world and turning to Christ. And these people with their dying breath, who haven't had to give up anything, haven't had to sacrifice anything, they get to go to heaven too? Well, doesn't that make you mad? Doesn't that frustrate you? I have to tell you, I wasn't expecting that question. And I wasn't expecting that perspective. But you hear what he's wrestling with, right? He's wrestling with who's in and who's out. He's wrestling with who gets to come into the kingdom of God and who's left out. He's getting at why someone would be brought in and why someone would be left out. And it wasn't just a question that this non-Christian was asking me on that day. But it's a question that the people of God have been asking throughout Scripture. It's a question that people in the Bible have asked. I mean, think about in the Gospels. When Jesus is interacting with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are coming to hear his message, right? You remember the Pharisees, how they responded? The religious leaders of the day? They couldn't believe that these people would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Right, because the Pharisees, right, they were looking at these people and they were thinking, well, well, we've heard the promises of God. We know the right things to say. We know the right things to do. We know the right things to think. But these people, well, they're not welcomed into the kingdom of God because they're not like us. Right, we're in, but they're not. So who's in and who's out? How are people brought in and how are people left out? It's a question not just that that non-Christian was asking me. It's a question not just that, that the Pharisees were asking. It's a question that Israel was confronted by and that they had to wrestle with as they were entering into the land. And this question wasn't just theoretical for them. It was actual. 
It becomes very real in chapter 9 because in chapter 9 we have the Gibeonites, these foreigners, and it seems like they're getting into the people of God and they're doing it through deception. They're doing it through deception. Did you see that? You see how the story's been playing out? So Israel has moved into the land. They've taken the cities of Jericho and Ai. And word is getting out for all the land, right? All the countries in the land, all the nations in the land. They're hearing about what's happened and what God has done through Israel. And so all these peoples, right? The, the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and all the other ites of the land, they come together and they decide we can't take Israel on our own, right? They're too too mighty of a fighting force. They're just going to cut right through us. And so, instead of trying to resist them on our own, instead of going to battle against them on our own, let's make a treaty. Let's make an alliance because then maybe together we can hold them off. But the, the Jebusites, they saw things a little bit differently, didn't they? You see, they saw things a little, or excuse me, the Gibeonites, not the Jebusites. The Jebusites are the bad guys. The Gibeonites, right, they, they see things a little bit differently. They look at Israel, they hear what God has accomplished, and they decide instead of opposing Israel, we need to try and find a way to align with them. So they concoct this elaborate ruse. Right? They grab their moldy bread, their worn out sacks, their torn and mended wine skins, their filthy clothes and their shabby sandals, and they say, we've traveled from far away. Right? Like, we're, we're not just three days journey away. Don't worry. We're not those people. We're like from way, way far away. Make peace with us. We've heard of all that God has done in Egypt and, and beyond the Jordan and now in the land. Make peace with us. Make a covenant with us. They had heard of the Lord and it made them want peace. Now let's make a few observations here. The first thing is, is they lied, okay? They lied. It's a deception. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't go, well, you know, it's kind of a, it's sort of a lie. No, 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 no. It's a lie, right? It's a lie. But also notice how different their response is to what they've heard than the other nations of the land. Everyone has heard about the greatness of God. Everyone has heard about the power of Israel. But the, the other nations of the land, what do they do? They think we'll resist. But Gibeon, they know we can't resist. Now what's interesting about this is that in next week's passage in chapter 10, we're going to hear that the city of Gibeon was actually greater than the city of Ai, and that the men of, Gib uh, of Gibeon, that they were warriors. So these were men accustomed to battle. They were accustomed to going to war. They knew what it took to fight, and yet they're looking at this situation and saying, we will not win. This city of warriors will be defeated. To fight against the Lord and his people would be futile. And so they don't pursue that. They don't try to win. Instead, they seek to align themselves. When the Gibeonites hear about God, they realize that he is not one that they should trifle with. That as strong as they are, God is stronger. And so what do they do? They make a statement very similar to the statement of Rahab, don't they? It's not the exact same, but it's very similar. 
And they recount all that God has done. And the threat of God's judgment actually leads them to want peace. Now, I imagine that some of us hear that and we start thinking, well, of course they want peace, right? Like they're, they're, covering, they're covering their backs, right? This is like fire insurance. It's like, we, we know God is coming. We know judgment's coming. We know war is coming. And so, you know what? Well, well we're, we're just going to cover our bets, right? We're going to cover ourselves. And of course it makes us think that, like, surely this can't be real. This can't be them being true in their profession of what they have heard because, because oftentimes we emphasize God's grace that woos us to himself, right? It's often God's grace that leads us to want his mercy. In fact, we hear in Romans when Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so when we hear the threat of judgment and doom, it doesn't sit well with us that that would cause someone to move towards the Lord. And yet, Jesus in his kingdom parables often presents his hearers with the threat of judgment as a way of stirring them to seek God. Jesus. The fear of death in verse 24, it motivates them to seek life. So they deceive Israel. So how does Israel respond to this? How do they respond to this deception? Well, they're deceived, (laughs) right? Uh, They believe the lie. That's what we see in verses 14 through 15. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So they welcomed them. They made peace. They believed the lie. But that's not all that they did. Did did you see what they didn't do in verse 14? At the end of verse 14, we have this little clause. But they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Clearly, this is a judgment on Joshua and the leaders. That when they were confronted by this situation, they didn't consult the Lord. Right? Because I imagine they're sitting there thinking, we're smart enough. We're wise enough. We can figure this out. Like, we don't need the Lord's help in this, right? Like, we've got two eyes. Of course, they came from a distant land. They've got moldy bread. Their sandals are worn out. Their clothes are filthy. I mean, mean, we don't need to bother God with this. We can discern this for ourselves, right? I could imagine them saying that, trusting in their own wisdom, trusting in their own discernment. They figured we can handle it. We've got this. You know who this sounds like? It sounds like me. And I imagine it probably sounds a lot like you too. Because we often think, I don't need the Lord's leading on this. I've got enough wisdom, enough discernment, enough education, enough experience. I've seen something like this before. I can figure it out. Like, like surely I can do this on my own. Right? Now, now, of course, that sounds awful when we put it that way, right? I don't need the Lord's help in this, right? It sounds awful when we say it. But don't we do this all the time? I know I do. I told the session this week, we had our session meeting and I was talking about this passage in our devotion. I said, I told them that every time I've read this passage, this verse, this part of the verse jumps out at me and it feels like it's like slapping me in the face again and again and again. 
They don't seek after the Lord. They don't discern the Lord and His leading. They don't look to Him. See, that's what they should have done. They should have sought God's direction. Now, now the text doesn't actually tell us what God would have said. Now, there's some implication, right? We, we maybe could discern and we could maybe imply, maybe the text implies that, that, that God would have said, you know what, um, these are your enemies. These people are deceiving you. These people are lying. Take up your swords and go to battle. He may have said that. But he may have also said, be merciful and be gracious. The passage actually doesn't tell us it doesn't tell us what God would have said. And so we have to hold in tension the unknown and two things that we do know. The unknown is we don't know what God said, but the, thing, the two things that we do know is that Israel was called to conquer the land and that at times God was merciful to the people in the land, Rahab being case in point. So God may have said in his response, they're your enemies. Go to war against them, battle against them. But he may have said, be merciful to them, be gracious to them. We don't know how God would have responded had Joshua sought him. But what we, we do know is that Joshua should have sought him. And what we also know is that Israel wasn't very excited about the predicament they were faced with. Right? We're told that after the lies discovered in verse 18, all the congregation murmured against the leaders. They murmured and grumbled. Right? Because the people, they're sin, they're going, they're, they've lied, they've deceived us. We should go to war. But Joshua and the leaders say, no, an oath has been taken. It's been taken in God's name, and so we can't go back on it. So what happens? What happens to Gibeon through their deception, through Israel's response? What happens is that Gibeon is engrafted into God's people. That's what we see. Look at verse 21. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And then skip down to verse 26. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So you see, Gibeon's lives were spared. And they served Israel. They served the Lord. We're told they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for the altar of the Lord. Okay, do you hear that? They are serving in the Lord's temple. What are we to make of this? They are serving in the Lord's temple. Well, well, what we do know is that one of the reasons why Israel was called to conquer the land, we're told this way back in Deuteronomy, was because the fear was that as Israel went into the land, they're confronted by these pagan gods and pagan religions, they would be led astray. They would be turned away from Yahweh, the one true God, and they would follow after all these religions of the land. So that's one of the reasons why they were to conquer the land. And so we know that there was that concern that to have these people in their midst would lead them astray. And yet here we have these pagans serving in God's temple. It leads me to a deduction. 
It leads me to think that if they haven't fully embraced the Lord as their God, that at least they are perhaps turning away from their foreign gods. And the reason why I'm led to this is because we know that God cannot tolerate idolatry. idolatry. (laughs) He can't tolerate idols in his presence, right? He can't tolerate that in his midst. And in fact, we see occasions in the Old Testament where priests of Israel would actually come into the presence of God and they would come with sin, with idols. They would come in ways that God had not called them and it did not go well for them. And so, so at the very least, I think it's probably an educated guess, deduction, whatever word you want to use, to think that maybe Gibeon is moving away from their foreign gods. We also know that going forward throughout redemptive history, that Gibeon's actually treated as part of God's people. See, later in 1 Samuel, King Saul, in his bloodlust, he actually seeks to kill the people of Gibeon. And in 2 Samuel 21, God condemns that act. He condemns that act because of the oath that was made to Gibeon. And also later, as Israel is returning from Babylonian exile in the book of Nehemiah, we're told that Israel returns and Gibeon was among those who returned. And so what we actually see throughout even redemptive history, not just this passage, but as we move into the histor- further into the historical books and even into the prophets and into Nehemiah, what we're seeing is that Gibeon is treated like they are part of God's people. They're receiving the blessing of God's people. So is Gibeon in or are they out? I mean, at the end of the day, that's the question we want answered when we come to these passages, isn't it? That's the question that people are always asking. Like Achan, he came under God's judgment. Is Achan in heaven? Like that, I've been asked that question countless times, right? Um, Gibeon, is Gibeon really part of God's people or are they not? Is Gibeon saved? That's the question we really want to know, right? I basically started with it and then you've wait, sat through 20 minutes to get to that question, <laughs> And the truth is, is that as I've been studying this and researching it and examining it and reading about it, um, it's amazing how uh, commentators differ on that question. There are some commentators who say, absolutely, Gibeon is in. There is no question about it. They're brought in. They're serving at the altar, right? This is basically Rahab 2.0. And then there are other commentators who are like, Absolutely not. There is no way. They're servants, yes, but they're servants. And they got in a deceitful and deceptive way. And there is no covenant ceremony. And they're not received in. No way. And there's everything in between. And the truth is, is that that question that we are asking, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't answer for us. And so we have to sit with that tension. And we have to sit maybe with that unknown. But what I do know is that those who are brought into the kingdom of God are often the unlikeliest of people. 
and are often those people that we would never expect, like Rahab the prostitute, or like Israel with their past filled with deception and sin and waywardness, and maybe even people like Gibeon who are a bunch of liars. That it's often the, the unlikeliest of people and those that we'd never expect that God welcomes into his kingdom and showers with grace and mercy. People like me. And people like you. People who were dead in our sins and trespasses. People whose past was filled with lies and deceptions who had rebelled and who were still enemies with God when God showed his grace and mercy through Jesus. So is Gibeon in? I don't know, but maybe a more important question for us today is what about you? What about me? And those people who are welcomed into God's kingdom, who receive his grace, they're not the people with the right pedigree or who come from the right place or who know all the right things to say or dress in all the right ways. But those that God welcomes into his kingdom are those whom he receives, whom he forgives. And forgives all their sins, even their lies. Those are the people who, by God's grace, through Christ, those are the people who are in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. And thank you that you give us passages that, that are sometimes difficult to wrestle over and sometimes don't answer all of our questions. And so it causes us to drive us back to you. And so we do come before you, and we come asking for mercy and grace, asking for forgiveness for us, asking that you would be kind and merciful, that you'd be forgiving and gracious, and that we know that you have been through Jesus, and so we thank you. We thank you that not because of our gifts, not because of our abilities, not because of our strengths or our pedigree, not because of our knowledge or our wisdom, but simply because of your grace. You call us your people. And so as your people, help us to live in light of that grace and to live before you and others as a people of your kingdom. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.